Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm an experienced registered yoga teacher with over 15 years of teaching experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is this, to help you develop into a purpose-driven, confident yoga teacher, one who truly understands anatomy and how to share it clearly and confidently so that you can help your students learn and as a result, grow your impact and connection. I strongly support and value the uniqueness of all individuals and provide a safe community where diversity is embraced. Through my mentorship and signature program called the Blueprint Learning Program, I help yoga teachers build their skills in the area of learning anatomy, and along with that, help them learn important business skills and personal development ways of being that will transform them into purpose-driven teachers who make a big impact. On the podcast here, you'll get a blend of both anatomy learning, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. For more information and to get on the wait list for any of my programs, see my website, barebonesyoga.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I am your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 121. So I'm recording this on March 15th, 2021. A lot of 21s in there, which is great because that's my lucky number. And um, it is Monday. I always record on Mondays. And um, I hope you had a really good weekend. I want to just share on a personal note for those of you who have been listening to the podcast, you know that last Monday, a week from today, was the day that I was due to pick up my brand new rescue dog, Coco. And so between last Monday and today, my life has completely changed. Uh, I have been back to just all the memories. I've, I've had three labs, yellow labs in my life. And so, uh, and I've raised them all from puppies. And so I, I um, remember what it was like to have a puppy. Now, while Coco isn't a puppy puppy, he's four months old is their estimate, the vet's estimate. Uh, he is still quite young. Four months is not that old. So he, and he came up from Arkansas where he was pretty much with his sisters in an outdoor penned in area. So he really isn't super trained. Um, however, I will say this weekend, he just crossed so many milestones, learned how to sit is learning how to walk on a leash. Um, is great in his crate at night. And um, he's still kind of working out being in his crate when we're not here. Um, overall though, he is just a total joy. And I can't, I just can't say enough about how great it is to have a dog back in my life. He's a lab hound mix. And if you're curious and you wanna see what he looks like, you can certainly go on my Instagram. I have a couple pictures. However, I started his own Instagram because I didn't want to crowd my yoga information with all these dog pictures. So I did set up a separate Instagram for him and you can check it out. It's Coco Rescue Pup at Coco Rescue Pup. And it's just C-O-C-O. So that's some personal news from me. And um, you know what I wanted to go over today, if you listen to last week's episode, you know that I did a short presentation on key bones and joints. And in that presentation, I mentioned that 
in the follow-up episode, I'd be going over a little bit about how muscles work and some of the key muscles in the body. So I'm going to go into that today. I wanted to just start out with just um, a comment or just a thought uh, that's, I don't want to say weighing heavily on my mind, but it's definitely on my mind today because one year ago today was the last class I taught before the shutdown here in Boston. And when I woke up this morning, I had set a reminder on my phone um, from many months ago, I set the reminder on my phone because I remember the Friday before the Sunday, which last year today was a Sunday. The Friday before was Friday the 13th. And I remember it was Friday before everything shut down. and on Sunday. And I remember teaching a class Friday, my regular Friday afternoon class at four o'clock. And there were only two people in the class because that was really embossed in the time when things were really starting to shift. And we kind of all felt like things were, there was going to be a big change coming. And people were already talking about um, a complete shutdown of the city. But I think there was still a sense that that could never happen because none of us had ever lived through that. So I went to teach my class and there were two people in class. There was uh, a nurse who worked at Mass General, which was right down the street from the studio I was teaching at. And there was a, a another woman in the class and she was a patient getting chemo for cancer at Mass General, and she had taken a break from her treatments to come and practice yoga. And the nurse um, shared that she had been on vacation for two weeks, and it was going to be her first shift back uh, after being on vacation for two weeks. And of course, she knew what she was going to be walking into the very beginning of COVID being um, in in the hospitals, and she was terrified. And so it was a very strange experience. Um, however, one, you know, in terms of what we were talking about, however, one where I really felt like I was in the right place, not only for the woman who was undergoing cancer treatment and she had specifically intentionally gone to take a yoga class and the same with the nurse who was there, um, because she wanted to do something for her health before she went and served others, uh, health. And then I taught my Saturday class at 4.30. And then I taught my Sunday class at 12.30. And I remember when I taught that class, it felt really awkward to me, but necessary to start the class out by saying, you know, hey guys, if you want to place your mats kind of off the markers on the floor and just give yourself, you know, some space between you, feel free to do that. And I remember I had said that because it was just around the time where the news was starting to talk about this concept called social distancing, which was such a strange phrase, one that I'd never heard of. And I remember when I said that people kind of sheepishly, you know, started to move their mats, you know, further away from the person next to them. And then we proceeded. No one was wearing a mask. I wasn't wearing a mask in class. However, at that point, I was probably a week into wearing a mask on the subway. And I was the only person, I think maybe one other person I would see uh, wearing a mask, but I was pretty clear in my mind that 
based on the reports at that point. It was a virus, it was airborne. And so I was, you know, one of the first people, you know, that I would see wearing a mask. And, um, and then I taught that Sunday class. And then later that afternoon, I got the email that both the studios I was teaching at had shut down. So I don't know what it was like for you. Um, you know, feel free to share when I post about this podcast episode on my Instagram, feel free to share whatever uh, is on your mind right now. You know, I think regardless of where you are in the world, this is just about the week where you probably stop teaching. And so there is you know, on some level of a sense of loss, you know, both the studios that I taught at one I taught at since 2011 and one I taught at for, I don't know, like 10 or 11 years, both of them have since shut down permanently. So, you know, today being the last or today being the anniversary of the last class I taught two people in person, um, it does kind of weigh on me. However, having said that, I think that for myself over the past year, you know, in a, in very rapid form, I was able to shift a lot of what I do and also feed a lot of what I was already doing with the quote unquote extra slash found time that I all of a sudden had, you know, I was able to build out my blueprint learning program significantly and that's my signature program on anatomy for yoga teachers. Um, I was able to really increase the number of studio-based trainings that I'm a contributor for, you know, being on staff uh, uh, for some of these studios that shifted their 200-hour trainings online immediately. Uh, and they sought me out to teach the anatomy portion of their training. And, you know, so it really required um, a need for me to think about how I could engage people in a really active way because the training was online versus in person. And, you know, just the idea of expanding my online community, I built the bare bones yoga practice portal in May that became my practice platform where I could direct people if they wanted to practice with me, uh, via recorded sessions. And then I've just over the months expanded it into different sections, including guided, including guided meditation, guided journaling exercises, a section on research where I review research in exercise science and medicine. So it's just been so much fun to build, to build that out. I did over 15 hours of free workshops over the summer. And those workshops were attended by yoga teachers all over the world, including people as far as Dubai. I built uh, a preschool pod program to replace all my preschool classes that I was teaching for kids and, and preschools in Boston. And now I just have this consistent uh, three to four morning a week um, schedule where I go to different homes and there's a consistent group of children that I meet with. And it's been just a joy for me to expand what I offer kids to, to not just teaching them yoga, but teaching them meditation, doing art projects with them, singing, teaching them how to write. It's just been so much fun. And to be of service to the mothers who, when I arrive, are freed up to do what they need to do to keep the household running. 
Um, and then most recently, I've been able to, with my most recent move, I've been able to build a brand new private yoga offer where I see students in my home in a space I have available to me in the house that's dedicated to teaching people yoga. It's a very small studio space. So for me, I, I really feel like um, I've been able to use this time to create new things and to build up the things I already have. And I also have spent a tremendous amount of time on continuing education for myself. And I'm sure a lot of you have as well, taking courses, doing free webinars, just really taking advantage of all the content that people started to shift to the online space. So, you know, there's never really going to be a silver lining to this past year, to what we've all been through, to what we've all witnessed on, on all the different levels, you know, but of course, most importantly, from the perspective of people who have been ill, people who have been lost. I think though, you know, I don't want to even say let's reframe it because I think it is obviously a very troubling, traumatic time that we're in. Um, I do want you though, to take this week to think about what shifts have you made? What things have you built? What things have you learned? What opportunities have you taken? What, what offers did you have that you shifted to be different, to meet people where they're at, to meet the times where they're at? You know, take the time to do that. And also, of course, take the time to be grateful for what you have. Uh, and if you have lost someone to the pandemic, to just think of them uh, in your meditation, in your days, as I'm sure you do, with love and with kindness, and to also give yourself the space to grieve and to do what you need to do to heal, you know, rather than, you know, if you are doing this, beating yourself up for not getting over it or, or any of those kinds of things. So I think too, in terms of forward thinking, I want to just share with you some of my thoughts about, you know, kind of the going forward for us as yoga teachers, um, especially given that we are at a year of, of living in this time of the pandemic. I really do believe that studios will come back. I know that some of you listening may have studios and you may be open. Some of you may be practicing in studios, um, you know, so there are definitely studios that are open and serving people on a limited capacity. However, what I'm talking about is the same thing I firmly believe when it comes to the restaurant industry and the economy in general, that it will come back. It will be a phased in approach, depending, of course, on where you live. Of course, if you live in Florida right now, I just read an article online this morning that Florida is just booming in terms of unemployment is low, people are moving there, tourism is up. So, you know, you may be living in a place, Texas maybe even, where you don't really see a lot of restrictions. You know, for me in Massachusetts, it's a very phased in approach. And, you know, without getting into all of the politics of what's happening, I think the reality from a from a tactical ground level is that where you live is going to define pretty much what you can offer. However, what I want to just share, and I hope that 
don't want to say I hope that you agree, but I hope that you can see this uh, ahead in the future is that yoga studios will come back. You know, people will um, want to go practice in person. And along with that, just keep in mind, if you wanted to open a studio, but never did before, because you knew your area was saturated with studios, now is the time to start figuring out how you can raise money, how you can use your savings, how you can get funding, how you can apply for business loans and grants, um, you know, all of that. Now would be a great time to do that planning because, you know, I think by the summer, it's going to be a different economy. And with, I know here in Boston, so many things that had that have closed retail stores and and the like yoga studios of course and other things gyms and small fitness studios there's probably there probably are spaces around where you live that would be pretty much plug and play to start a new studio so that i just wanted to throw that out there uh and also you know i think right now is a great time to build a private yoga offer. So if you uh, have space in your home to see people one-on-one, -on -one, now's the perfect time because private yoga really is, in my opinion, the bridge to people going back to public classes. And that time is right now. The time for public classes, I predict is sometime in the summer um, where people are going kind of in mass. But um, I think right now is, is, is the time to think about you know, pretty quickly crafting an offer for people for them to see you one-on-one. -on -one. And if you do have the space in your home to maybe even think about come summertime, hosting small events, small workshops, you know, maybe three or four people in your home, that is another fabulous idea. You know, keep in mind, you know, you want to check out all of the uh, aspects of having people in your home for physical fitness. Uh, from a liability perspective. So maybe check with your homeowner's insurance. Uh, you definitely want people to sign a waiver. You wanna make sure that your teaching insurance is up to date. So all of those things are part of that. Um, however, I, I think from the big picture that that is certainly something that is, is out there as well. Now, having said all of that, I wanna just say from a high level perspective, I really, really encourage you before you start at the tactical level doing any of these things that I'm suggesting or whatever, whatever other ideas you might have, you must start first with defining who you are as a teacher and what is your mission, right? I'll say that again. You must start first with defining who you are as a teacher and defining what your mission is. Because without that as your true north, it's impossible to come up with these offers. You've really got to have something that binds everything together. And it can't be something you saw online or something that you're doing because you've hijacked it from somebody else because you think it's going to make you popular. It can't be something that you feel like you have to do. I have to teach in a particular way. I really encourage you to take the time to define who you are as a teacher what lights you up when you teach who do you want to work with who do you want to help what you know what how do you want to present yoga from a cues and sequencing standpoint you know that is all at the highest level and from that comes all of these other things we're talking about 
certainly if you were to open a studio, you'd want to define what your mission is as a teacher. Um, but even outside of that, seeing people privately, what kind of private students, how are you going to describe to them your offer? So, and none of this has to do with money. This is really, I don't want to say the existential part. <laughs> it's really the, um, the personal work that needs to be done in order for you to define at the highest level who you are as a teacher. And I see too many teachers and, and some of the conversations I have are with about this are with teachers in my Blueprint Learning Program who use things like, I have to do this, I must do that, I need to do this. Whenever you hear yourself using those kind of hard and fast rule type words, especially in regards to your teaching, I want you to stop and ask yourself, who says I need to do it this way? Who says I have to do it this way? And I promise you, when you ask that question, it's probably common that you're going to come up with, I don't even know, why do I, why am I holding on to this thought that I have to practice with my class when I'm teaching them online? Why am I holding on to this thought that I have to use music with my classes? Why am I holding on to this thought that I have to have my classes be at least 60 minutes long? You know, any of these quote unquote rules of yoga, I really want you to question where they're coming from, because many times where they're coming from is you're just assuming that that's the way things have to be done because that's the way a lot of people do them. And that's a really poor choice or poor rationale to use. I really want you to have rationale for anything you do that resonates with you. And that is rationale, maybe based in science, maybe based in um, yoga philosophy, yoga history, anything, something that you can track it back to besides just something that you assume people do. Um, so again, just start with your mission, do some, you know, do some writing, do some journaling, sit and meditate, see yourself teaching. And, and look for the details in the vision that comes to your mind. Where are you teaching? Who are you teaching? What are you saying? What are you wearing? All of these things will help you define what inspires you to teach. And as a result of that, help you define who you're meant to work with and how. So that's our intro for today. What I want to do uh, right now is I'm going to switch to the PowerPoint. So I actually have to just, you all can't see this because <laughs> this is audio, but I'm going to switch to uh, a PowerPoint that will give us a sense of um, the content for the next part of the presentation that I'm going to share with you, which is the part on muscles. And we're going to start out last week, as I said, we talked about key bones and joints. And so for today, we're going to start out with a little bit about muscles. Okay. So let's first talk about the type of muscle that is is really what we're dealing with when it comes to yoga practice. So in yoga, we're focusing on skeletal muscles that attach to bones and muscles are defined as having an origin, which is their starting point, uh, and an insertion, which is where they end. And it doesn't matter the shape of the muscle. So if you look at a muscle like the quadriceps 
running on the thigh bone. It pretty much runs from the top of the thigh to the knee. But then you look at a muscle like the latissimus dorsi, which isn't just a straight lined muscle running contiguous with a bone. The latissimus dorsi starts down in the sacral area and expands in this broad uh, shape, flat shape, all the way up to a small part on your humerus and the back of your humerus, kind of the inner back part of the bone. And so it's a very broad muscle. If you were to, to look at the latissimus dorsi in isolation, it would almost kind of look like a small kite, sort of, versus the quadriceps would just be kind of like an exercise band, you know, just like a long line. But it doesn't really matter. You know, the origin and insertion are always the, um, the format for defining muscles. Although muscles that are really broad, like the latissimus dorsi, have many more points of origin and insertion, or some muscles have just one point, you know, and that just is in part defined by their shape. So for most of the movements that are discussed when you, when you look at muscles and how they function, you look at the insertion moving closer to the origin, but you could, for some muscles, look at it in reverse. Now, there are muscles that start at one place and end at another place, as we said, origin and insertion, and they cross a joint. And that, from our discussion last week, is how the joint, uh, how the limbs move, because the muscle crosses the joint, and that's, uh, the muscle acts upon the joint, crosses the joint, and that's how the limbs move. And a muscle that crosses one joint is a monoarticular muscle. And then you have muscles that cross two joints and they are polyarticular, poly meaning more than one. And so if you have a muscle, let's say like the rectus femoris, it crosses both the hip and the knee. So it acts to flex the hip as well as extend the knee. So that's just a little bit more about kind of defining muscles themselves. Now, when we look at a muscle doing something, creating action, it acts as the creator of the action, otherwise known as the agonist. And when it does that, it's got a nearby muscle that does the opposite thing. And that muscle is the antagonist, it opposes the action. So if you pick up a, a dumbbell, you're flexing your elbow and you're using your biceps as the agonist. And while you're picking it up, your tricep could extend your arm, but you're overtaking the force of the tricep by picking up the, the, the dumbbell and using your biceps. And so muscles work in um, this paired coordinated uh, dance, uh, one as the doer and one as the resistor of what's being done. Now you have different kinds of contractions. You have a concentric contraction, which is where the movement occurs because of an active muscle and the origin and insertion are moving closer together. So in the case of you picking up a dumbbell or doing barbell curls, um, you are using your biceps concentrically and your triceps are not being used concentrically because they're not extending your elbow, you're bending your arm, you're flexing your elbow. An eccentric contraction is where the muscle is lengthening in its role to slow the movement of the muscle that is concentrically contracting. So again, in that example, when you pick up the dumbbell and you bend your elbow, you're concentrically using your bicep and the tricep is sort of 
mitigating how much contraction the biceps is doing so that the movement is smooth, so that it's not like you're just picking up the barbell uh, or the dumbbell and just flinging it towards your face. The tricep is, triceps is moderating how that movement occurs. And then you have an isometric contraction where the muscle is working to hold a body part in place. If you just um, hold your arms out in warrior two, you have muscles that are working to just hold the arms out there in the air. And that's um, from an anatomical movement perspective known as uh, shoulder abduction. So for our discussion today, I'm going to just pick a couple of muscles um, just to go through you know, this is a, a pretty exhaustive review of muscles when I do this presentation in the Blueprint Learning Program. Um, however, for today's conversation, I'm just gonna pick a couple of them. What I would say to you uh, as you're studying muscles on your own, and, and honestly, I would not recommend that. I would really, really recommend that you study muscles in the context of being in a training program, whether it's my program, or being in a 200 hour or 500 hour program, or I don't even honestly put really, I'm not really talking about hours-based programs. I'm, I'm just simply saying um, it can be really difficult to learn muscles on your own and have that be one of the steps to learn anatomy. It's, it's really, really helpful to be learning muscles in the context of understanding how to apply what you're learning to teaching right? Because we're not just studying muscles as yoga teachers, just to know the muscles. We're learning the muscles so that we can uh, refer to them in teaching in various different ways. You know, the literal way we refer to them is we cue poses, actions, and then my share anatomy-based cues where we refer to the muscles. Um, however, even if we are not using anatomy-based cues, we oftentimes are uh, in need of knowing what's going on under the skin so that we can cue even action and alignment-based cues uh, in, a, in a helpful way to our students. So, you know, in terms of studying muscles on your own, I would say to have the best opportunity to not be completely overwhelmed, focus on the name of the muscle, generally where it is in the body, a general description of the origin and the insertion, and then what the concentric action is. And I would say that would be a really good format for every muscle. Because if you get into the weeds on every single muscle, you know, trying to remember all the points of origin, all the points of insertion, not only the concentric action, but the eccentric action, the secondary concentric action, it very quickly becomes extremely overwhelming. So stick with the format that I'm going to use here, and that will at least give you a chance if you are uh, studying on your own at not getting overwhelmed. So for today, I'll just pick maybe four or five muscles to review, and that'll give you a sense of, you know, not only these muscles, but also um, will give you a sense of how to, how to apply this format on your own. So let's first look at the psoas. So the psoas is in the middle of your body and it connects your lumbar spine to your femur. The interesting thing about the psoas is that it runs from essentially when I say the lumbar spine, the lower back to the femur, but it runs anterior to the pelvis. So it runs in front of the pelvis. It's very, very deep in the body in that um, 
there are your abdominal organs on top of it or in front of it. Um, all your other um, abdominal muscles are, are there as well. So it's not readily available, even if you were to palpate your stomach, that it's not really common that you would be palpating your, your psoas. Unlike, you know, if you were to just press your fingers along your thigh bone, you would definitely be palpating your quadriceps. So visually, you know, if you kind of imagine in your mind, your lumbar spine and a muscle starting on the lumbar spine and then working its way down to the femur in front of the pelvis. Now the function of the psoas is hip flexion. And so if your trunk is fixed, meaning if you're standing up and you're not going to bend forward at all, your psoas is going to work concentrically to flex your hip. So as it contracts, it's going to pull the foot off the floor and hug the knee into the chest. And so that essentially is hip flexion and that's the role of the psoas. So let's take a look at another one. Another one in the lower back area is the QL or the quadratus lumborum. Now quadratus is uh, you know, a uh, kind of a telltale or a, or a tell because quad is in the word and quad refers to four and the quadratus lumborum is a four-sided muscle. It runs from the lower rib down to, uh, well, actually it starts, the origin is the iliac crest and it runs up to the lower rib and it also touches the um, lumbar vertebrae. So from the, from the iliac crest, which is if you, if you take your hands and put your hands on your hips, you'll feel your iliac crest with your thumbs. So that ridge of your pelvis is where it starts. And then it goes up to the 12th rib and the transverse processes of the upper lumbar vertebrae. So the transverse processes are basically the little wings of the, ver of the vertebrae. So if you look at a vertebrae on its own, it has the little winged part of the bone on both sides. And that's a good attachment point for muscles and the QL hooks on to there. Now the QL is your side bending muscle. So it's known as the muscle of lateral trunk flexion, lateral flexion of the spine. So for poses like side angle and um, side plank, triangle, you know, this muscle is at work on the side you're bending to and is stretching on the opposite side. So if I take triangle with my right foot forward, my right-sided QL is contracting and my left-sided QL is lengthening. So let's take a look at another one. This time we're gonna go up to the neck, neck area. So this is the levator scapula and the levator scapula is another muscle that it has kind of a tell in the, in the name. Levator to me sounds like elevator. And as it turns out, it is a, an elevation muscle of the scapula. So the levator scapula starts on the transverse processes of the cervical spine, C1 to C4, and it inserts on the scapula. And so when it contracts, it's going to pull your scapula up. So imagine you're holding the phone in the crook of your neck. And in that position, your scapula on that side is elevated. And so this is in part the function of the levator scapula. 
The partner of the levator scapula is the upper trapezius. The upper trapezius is like the lats in that it's a big, broad muscle. And because it's really big and broad and flat, it has a section that is on top of the levator scapula known as the upper trap. And so the levator scapula and the upper trap work together to elevate your scapula. And so this is an example of, you know, we talked earlier about muscles acting as agonists and antagonists. This is an example of muscles acting as synergists or collaborators. They do the same thing. So levator scapula and upper trap, they both lift the scapula up. Now I'm gonna just throw in one more thing about these two muscles. <clears throat> because they lift the scapula up, um, or not so much because, but what I would say is keep in mind that they lift the scapula up and think about a posture where we don't really want the scapula to be lifted, but we sometimes see the scapula lifted. And I want you to just think about what, what um, action or what pose that might be in. And if you thought about high to low push-up or low push-up, you'd be correct. Many times you'll see people in low push-up using their levator scap and their upper trap to lift their scapula up. And so they'll be in low push-up and you'll see their scapula just kind of lifting up kind of as if they had two phones, you know, on the sides of their head that they're trying to pin in between their shoulder and their ear. And we really don't want people to come into low push-up with that alignment. We want them to try to keep the scapula steadier on the back. And so in order to do that, they have to use a different muscle called the serratus anterior. And the serratus anterior starts on ribs eight through nine and inserts on the scapula. And the function of the serratus is not only upward rotation, I'm not gonna really get into that right now. Here, um, what I'm really looking to highlight is the serratus anterior's role as an abductor and protractor of the scapula. So abduction of the scapula means that the scapula are not moving closer to the spine, they're moving away from the spine. So think about when you do plank, or when you do a little bit of cat pose in plank. So you're in plank, but you push into the ground and you kind of round your upper back just a little bit. That's protraction of the scapula. You want more of that in low push-up rather than having people lower towards the floor and use their levator scapula to lift the scapula up. So for that one, that discussion we just had, we actually hit two different muscles. Uh, so you got the levator scapula, actually three, upper trap, as well as serratus anterior. So I'm going to do two more. So let's go down to the lower body. Let's take a look at, I'm just kind of flipping through. All right. So let's take a look at the gluteus medius. So the gluteus medius, generally speaking, is on the outer hip. The gluteus medius, uh, you would also more specifically say the lateral aspect of the hip. The origin of the gluteus medius is, it's a little complicated. The, the, the literal definition of the origin is dorsal ilium inferior to iliac crest. So what I would generally say is below the iliac crest. So if you're familiar at all with the parts of the pelvic bone, 
you have the iliac crest, which is the ridge. You can kind of trace your finger on the ridge of the pelvic bone. So right below that is the broad origin of the gluteus medius. Now, the interesting thing is the insertion is one spot on the femur known as the greater trochanter. And so it's it kind of trying to think of what it looks like. Um, it's kind of hard to describe what it looks like uh, just in words, but it's a pretty broad muscle that then it, it kind of looks almost like a fan, like if someone were fanning themselves with like a little fan, it kind of looks like that. So on the bottom of the fan, uh, it attaches to the femur and then it fans out and has touch points all along that iliac crest of the pelvis. And the function of the gluteus medius is abduction of the thigh. So if you're standing in straddle or you're in warrior two, you're abducting your hips and the gluteus medius is doing that. And then the last one we'll look at is, let's take a look at, let's take a look at the adductor magnus. So adduction is moving closer to the midline and the adductor magnus is on the inner thighs. So it's a hip adductor. It's gonna bring the legs closer together, therefore adducting the hip. The origin of the adductor magnus is the, I'll tell you the literal, is the inferior pubic ramus. And essentially what that is, is if you look at the pelvis, there is the ischial tuberosity, which is a sitting bone. It's in that area. That's where it starts. However, the insertion is really broad. It's basically all down the inner line of the thigh. And the action when it concentrically contracts is it brings the legs closer together. It's a, th a powerful thigh adductor. And so when you're coming into chair or eagle pose, um, hero pose, these are positions, child's pose to a certain extent, although it's not really an active posture, uh, you're using the adductor magnus. So that gives you an idea of, you know, this, you know, kind of um, using a format to um, review muscles. And, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of, conversationally going over them here. And I, I really, you know, um, suggest that you work towards having the skill to be able to converse about muscles like this rather, you know, and, and I'm not saying rather than, you know, consider that a place to work towards start out by reviewing the muscles from the points that I've, I've suggested. And then from there, you know, there's lots of different tools that people create, whether it's flashcards or looking at a PowerPoint, whatever tools you're using. And then work yourself to a point where you can look at a skeleton and you can point to where different muscles are and describe them along the parameters that I suggested as if you were just having a conversation with someone. And that will really demystify it. I think teachers can get really overwhelmed learning muscles because there are a lot of words that aren't commonly used. There's the whole issue about getting familiar with where the muscles are, you know, so I get it. It can be um, a bigger task than learning some of the other things. However, this is really where the rubber meets the road. You know, if you want to be a teacher that is not only effective, but really in integrity, 
you're going to be um, psyched to spend the time learning these muscles or learning muscles, because that's the basis for where your anatomy-based cues are going to come from. They're not going to come from just repeating things you hear or taking someone's cue that you heard on a YouTube video and using that. They're going to come from what you know, and that is a surefire way to build your confidence as a teacher. And it really gives you, even if you're not ever speaking to, to this literally when you're teaching, it gives you not only quiet confidence when you teach, um, it also gives you an ability to anticipate student needs, suggest modifications even before they think they need them, and do all sorts of really practical, tactical things like build sequences with specific anatomical themes. And then all of what goes into working with people one-on-one -on -one is fueled by how much you understand the muscles. So it's definitely a key part. I would say if you're uh, someone who's been trying to learn this on your own and you pretty much are ready to throw up your hands and, and just admit that it's, it's just not possible to do in any reasonable time frame on your own, which I totally get that and I agree with it. I agree with that. I think it's really hard to do independently. I want you to get on the wait list for my blueprint learning program. I can help you. I've helped lots of teachers. I have teachers enrolled right now who are actively going through the program. It's a great way to learn anatomy because it's structured. Uh, because it's step-by-step. Step. It's not kind of a choose-your-own-adventure format. And that is one of the surefire ways to keep you engaged, keep you excited, and prevent that feeling of overwhelm and that feeling that too many teachers have, which is, oh my God, here I am again, trying to learn anatomy and I can't do it. You know, being involved in my program really keeps you on track and gives you the support you need so you don't get to that point. So to get on the waitlist for that, all you need to do is go to my website and click the link on the homepage for the Blueprint Learning Program waitlist. And um, so that covers it for today. That's our, that's our brief presentation on muscles. You know, to go through all of them would just not do a service to you because podcast is not the way to go through this. Um, however, I wanted to give you a taste of it, uh, both bones, joints and muscles. Now, I will just end by saying this. Um, recently, I did a really fun uh, workshop on uh, how to provide effective cues. And there were so many tips that I shared in there, including quite a few that you can use right away to improve the way you cue. And to give you um, a really good format for your cues. Now, if you want to see that workshop, just send me a DM and I'll send you the link. You can DM me on Instagram or just go to the show notes for this episode and the link will be there. And to get to the show notes, you just go to my website, barebonesyoga.com, go to the podcast page and you'll see this episode posted. Click on that and the show notes will be there. So I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope you have a really good week. Um, if you're a yoga teacher, which I'm guessing most of my listeners are, uh, and you have been listening to the podcast, uh, or maybe you're new to the podcast, if you've learned anything from this, if you're inspired by any of the content, if you've enjoyed any of my guests, I would love for you to leave a review 
sometimes people ask me how they can support the podcast. That's a great way you can do it. So thank you so much for listening. I'll see you on the next episode. Namaste. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I am your host, Karen Fabian, and I just want to remind you, if you would like to get on the wait list for my two premier programs, the Blueprint Learning Program and my mentorship program, all you need to do is visit my website, barebonesyoga.com, and the links to get on the wait list for both of these programs are right on the homepage. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode.